right, so Danny, thanks so much for joining us. Um, today, we're gonna to be talking about optimizing nutrition for muscle growth. Why don't you just start out by introducing yourself to the listeners, letting them know kind of what you've been doing and uh, a little bit about your education, your background. Sure, so I own a company called Sigma Nutrition and we primarily try to put out educational information around nutrition science and how that pertains to health, body composition and then performance we have a coaching arm to the business where we work with a lot of different people we have some people that are generally interested in health but we also work with quite a lot of athletes um, and my own background as a consultant end up being with a lot of weight class based athletes primarily that was initially in boxing and mixed martial arts and then more in recent times sigma as a company we've been working with quite a lot of power lifters uh, in helping them manage their body composition but also make weight for competition uh, then on the other side of the business we focus on educational content so this is through the podcast sigma nutrition radio which is what i think people most uh, are familiar with or is their first kind of channel into our work but we also do written piece of content i end up speaking at quite a few uh, conferences and doing seminars and so on which is, is great and so most of my time currently is spent around trying to read through research and then put that across in some sort of educational manner and i suppose from a educational background uh, my undergraduate degree was in biology and physics and then I did my master's degree in nutritional sciences. And then off the back of that, Sigma Nutrition started. And then about seven years later, here we are. So that's uh, a few of the basics, but I'm happy to get into any specifics that you want. So as, as I mentioned uh, off air, um, I wanted to take this conversation in a little bit of a different direction than uh, people often do. So, you know, we will cover some macros. We will cover, you know, some of the, the structure of the diet, but I wanted more so to focus on some of the other things that I feel like don't get talked about enough and uh, that I've had a lot of questions from people just even on Instagram and submitting to my website. So why don't we just start off with, from a nutritional perspective, what are some of the primary differences between uh, strength athlete and physique athlete in terms of priorities? Sorry, the uh, the dogs just came in, so they're... Oh, no problem, man. Yeah, we, we can uh, take a break if you want to... No, 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 no. <laughs> it's all good. Um, sure, yeah, and I think this is actually a good question, and this relates even beyond talking about strength versus hypertrophy. It really comes down to any goal someone may have with their nutrition, and actually a lot of times where athletes, whether that's a strength athlete or otherwise, tend to run into problems is whether is because they're applying principles that may relate to a different nutritional goal to what they think their goal is. So as a clear example, people will look at nutrition principles or more so they take certain dieting strategies that people use from a body composition perspective, most notably just fat loss or weight loss more generally when we can get into all these types of fad diets and then try and use them as strategies either to get leaner or to make weight for competition and they're just misapplying principles that doesn't really relate to their specific goal so with that said i think for a, a strength athlete versus a let's say a physique athlete or someone who's mainly concerned about their physique the each of those goals will be focused on by both of those populations. However, the 
order in which they are of importance is flipped. So for the strength athlete, you do want to prioritize gaining more muscle mass, but simply because that is a means to your end of getting stronger. Whereas in the opposite case, for someone who is solely focused on body composition, they will still do things to try and get stronger over time, but because that has the effect of them building more muscle mass. So they have the same similar goals, but one is just the reason to propel them towards another. So understanding that is important. And secondly, if we were to take it to the extremes of body composition change as an example, so let's say a bodybuilder or a physique athlete, they are trying to end up in a position where their body composition looks its best and best, I mean, by how it's judged in front of a set of judges on a stage. At that time point, their performance in the gym doesn't matter at all, right? And in fact, when a bodybuilder is on stage, their performance is going to be at probably worst that it'll ever be if they were to go and try and lift. So whereas on the other hand, a strength athlete is all about getting to a point where their strength expression is as strong as it can possibly on a certain day, or probably to be more precise, as strong as it can possibly be at a given weight on a certain day. And so understanding them, I think we can then start working through those fundamentals related to nutrition, which we'll probably go through now and see how there might be slight variations. But I think getting that understanding of what is my main goal and then being able to orientate everything around that is, is probably important. So I don't know if that directly answered your question, but from an overview, higher level, level of thinking, I think that's f- important to establish first. But probably as we go through some of these topics, we'll be able to highlight some differences between each. So I really like how you mentioned that at the onset, because a lot of the times when I've had clients, they'll come in and they'll state their goal, But then a lot of the times I have to sort of reiterate to them, hey, like, is this your goal or is that your goal? Because someone might come in and say, hey, I want to get stronger, when in reality they want to build muscle. And those things aren't necessarily synonymous, obviously, right? Mm. And so I I do like how you kind of created that differentiation right from the start, because even though there is a lot of overlap, you might approach those two goals in very distinct ways. Um, So... Yeah, why don't we give a brief overview, I guess, of how you would structure nutrition from a bodybuilding perspective and how that might change um, if you're a strength athlete looking to optimize muscle. Now, in both cases, you're looking to optimize muscle. And, you know, for a bodybuilder, you'd probably look to optimize muscle, but also maintain a little, you know, level of leanness throughout. Mm. So I think probably the main difference is going to relate to the training strategy. And probably what sometimes it can be misunderstood is people overemphasizing what nutrition is going to do for either one of these goals, whether particularly for building muscle mass. And people forget about putting most of their focus on the most potent stimulus, which is their training, and getting that right. So if we first presume that someone has the fundamentals of their training program down to the point where they're actually providing a suitable stimulus, uh, we can go from there. But I don't want to gloss over that either because that by far is going to make the biggest difference. And so we can quite clearly get someone stronger 
without necessarily having uh, any real noticeable differences in muscle mass, particularly depending on the training strategy um, and particularly when it comes to strength expression and like say a peaking block where someone is going from taking the already built muscle into being able to express that into a one rep max. I think that's a case where you see someone's strength, at least on paper, seem to increase, but there's going to be no real change in actual muscle tissue. And in a similar vein, we know that with training for uh, muscle mass, volume at an appropriate RPE, let's say, but volume generally is going to be that biggest driver of uh, muscle mass from a training perspective. And so that can happen without someone's um, absolute strength, let's say from a one rep max perspective, change all that much, at least over a short period of time. Over the long term, it probably will go up. So when it comes to nutrition, it's really about how do we support each of those goals? If the goal is muscle mass, then there's probably two main things we need to do. Number one is have someone's protein intake adequate for supporting their recovery from training, but also having protein around to actually grow new muscle tissue. So that would be their total amount of protein across the day in combination with that it split across the day into probably at least three, but we're probably talking about four to five high protein servings across the day with the goal of maximizing muscle protein synthesis, which is that process of building new muscle protein. And the way to optimize that seems to be high protein feedings split across, like I said, about four meals-ish. Doing that in the context of an appropriate high protein diet, which we would say is at a minimum about 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And in certain circumstances, that will probably need to be higher. So for certain individuals, or if someone is, particularly if they're under eating on calories or even at weight maintenance, we might need to push that protein intake a bit higher. For people who are in a calorie surplus, they might need to be near the lower end of that. But about a minimum of 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight, split across four high-protein feedings across the day. And then the second part of the equation is their total calories. And I think this is worth pointing out that being in a calorie surplus is productive for building muscle mass, but it's not a direct driver of muscle mass, which is why I started this whole thing by talking about training being that potent stimulus. What calories are doing is just having a slight surplus of calories and that slight surplus of energy available to put towards this process of building muscle is something that is going to allow that person to build at a at, at a fast as rate as they can, but just eating more and more calories doesn't lead to more and more muscle mass gain. So there's a certain cap on how much muscle someone can build, a certain rate that is going that they can build at, and just adding more calories isn't going to do anything. So a relatively small calorie surplus is going to be permissive to the fastest rate of growth. And then on top of that, we're going to layer in suitable protein uh, feedings, and they're going to be the two primary strategies from a, a nu nutrition standpoint. The other things that we're going to do is all about supporting training. So we could get into carbohydrate intakes and how that can maybe support training during a muscle mass building phase. We could talk about supplementation, whether that's creatine or caffeine use and so on. But all of those are to support training, allow that person to be able to push the most amount of volume they can and recover from that volume. And uh, that is the goal of those other aspects. So that's how I kind of try and think about it. Overall energy availability, protein feeding, and then all the other nutrition considerations to support training at 
a high enough volume and recovering from that. So that would be the, the primary distinction I make from a muscle mass perspective. Yeah. And, and so initially, I just want to kind of expand on something you said at the beginning where you mentioned that doing hypertrophy or hypertrophy block will potentially blunt strength expression, uh, at least temporarily, not necessarily in the long run. And I've gotten a lot of questions about this as well, because on the one hand, I talk a lot about how muscle is incredibly important for getting stronger, especially once you kind of reach your upper limit of strength at a particular body weight. Um, you, you will need to look to put on some additional muscle <clears throat> if you want to make it to the next level. And I think that those two conversations sometimes get a little bit misinterpreted. And so just to kind of lay things out, um, muscle will potentiate strength in, in the sense of you have more contractile tissue, but because like you said earlier, when you're doing volume, you're probably going to be working somewhere in the eight to 12 rep range for your main compound lifts. So if you're doing eight reps or 12 reps or somewhere in that range, that's very different than doing a single, right? From a technical standpoint, uh, just from, from every single thing about it is just very different, even though it's the same lift, right? Like, and that's why a lot of the times when you'll see these uh, volume blocks progress into a peaking block, it doesn't just go from 12 to singles. It goes from like 12s to eights to sixes and threes, and then eventually singles because they're very different skill sets. They're also like your, your ability to recover from doing multiple sets of 10 is going to be very different than doing a bunch of triples. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of different things that go in there as well as from a skill component, you're not going to need to brace as much or as well. And you can kind of get away with being a little bit sloppier if you're doing higher repetition sets. And so that's one of the reasons why at least potentially, or not, not potentially, temporarily your strength or your ability to express a true one RM is, is going to be impeded temporarily. But with new muscle, as you potentiate that, and as you go into a peaking block, you are going to see, you know, some, some increases in strength just because you have more muscle, you have more tissue that can apply force into the bar or whatever it is that you're, you know, you're doing. So I just mm. kind of want to clarify that because I get a lot of questions about that and, and they're great questions. Mm. Um, so I just kind of want to clarify that point before yeah. the board. Yeah, no, no, that that is super important. Uh, I think uh, why the re reason I tried to use the the phrase strength expression is to try not to yeah. confuse that issue. That yeah, you you can do these multiple months of volume work. It doesn't mean you are weaker. It just means you have a poor ability to express that strength because of the neural and technical demands that you just mentioned there. So yeah, that's a very good point. So. Um, what, what are some of the common mistakes that beginner lifters run into when they first start putting on muscle? And do you see any differences between, you know, some of the, some of the sort of mistakes that they make and then mistakes that maybe beginners or, or sorry, intermediate and advanced athletes make? Is there any sort of difference there? So uh, I think the biggest difference here or definitely a mistake that you see at, I would say an intermediate and advanced level is once people have got through that phase where they can gain muscle very quickly, probably in that first year of lifting, and they can have dramatic increases in their body weight and quite a sizable portion of that coming from muscle mass, and then not realizing that that doesn't last forever. And so for future gaining phases, you need to be much more conservative with the rate of weight gain you're going to look at once you become an intermediate and certainly once someone becomes advanced that if you try and push for very fast rates of weight change 
going in an upward direction, you're going to just be gaining much more body fat than is necessary because you're just not in a position anymore where you can gain new muscle tissue as quickly because you are now an intermediate athlete or now an advanced athlete. And so bearing that in mind is probably the biggest thing. Once someone gets a few years in and they're, they're probably at that upper intermediate level, uh, certainly need to be very wary of trying to do these uh, gaining phases where they're trying to pack on huge amounts of muscle in a short space of time. It's just not going to happen. You can put on a lot of weight, but it's not going to be very useful as muscle. And at the far end, you're just going to end up having to diet some of that body fat off probably. And so it's going to take away from a set number of weeks or months where you're now under eating to diet down that you could have been putting towards productive training. So that would be one uh, I'd say an intermediate and above level. For beginners, a lot of the time, it's maybe trying to jump in and do too many things that considered advanced, particularly people who are maybe beginner lifters, but are super interested in the sport and want to try and do everything right. And I think this goes beyond nutrition, as you could probably talk about with training, but trying to do everything they possibly can to progress in the sport and putting too much of their mental focus on small little details that won't really matter. So once a beginner is training with an adequate training program, is putting in a sufficient amount of work and is working hard in the gym, is eating in a calorie surplus and eating plenty of protein and their overall diet looks pretty good, then that's like 90% plus of what they need to even think about. And trying to worry about... um small little tweaks to a certain supplement protocol is probably not going to yield all that much benefit. It can have some benefit, but probably not as much benefit as someone at a higher level might need. And we can talk about that. And the same thing with specific uh, timing around their food or putting too much mental energy on specific food choices between this food or that food and overthinking every single choice to the point where they become paralyzed by all these different options and keep jumping from different diet strategies that they hear about. So I think just being clear on the fundamentals is probably where a lot of beginners may go wrong, that they're looking for a specific type of diet and they're asking people, what does your diet look like? Or they'll come to you, Daniel, and say, hey, man, what are you eating? As if that your diet is going to apply to them as a beginner, instead of saying, what are the fundamental things I need to get right? Am I eating appropriate amount of energy? Is my overall food quality good? Am I getting enough protein? And am I training hard and being able to recover from what I'm doing? And then not overly worrying about too much else. Uh, that's what I would tend to do because there's enough to focus on and get those things consistently right for a beginner that that's where their focus should be. How do I make these consistent habits over time as opposed to looking for a very specific type of diet? Um, so they're, they're the first things that come to mind. Those are all really great points. And I find even for myself at times, because obviously this is my job, I have to learn new things. I have to be constantly involved in new research and, you know, just going to seminars, listening to different lectures and things like that. You kind of nerd out and then you start being like, oh man, I need to focus on this. I need to focus on that. And you, you can sometimes forget what really matters in, in the basics, right? Because you try to incorporate all these advanced strategies, even, even as an advanced or intermediate athlete. And I think it's something that you kind of always have to remind yourself of that you're never too advanced for the basics. And I made a post about this recently, like saying exactly that. And, you know, you always kind of have to humble yourself and be like, Hey, this is what got me really good. Why would I think that this is going to you know change? Mm. I mean, 
you know, lift heavy weights, eat enough, eat a good protein. And that's like 98% of your results right there. So mm. that, that's a really great point that you made. Yeah. And I, I think just as a side tangent, um, I was talking to my friend about some uh, survey data that came out with some research looking at powerlifters in particular and the average turnover time for someone getting into powerlifting and like competing in the sport then leaving like an average was like two years for a lot of people and i'm sure you may have seen this people that get really into it and then two years later they're just completely gone burned out from it and i think a lot of this may be the same type of tendencies of trying to do everything right have all there's all these different small things that we could be doing and it's taking so much mental attention and someone's whole identity then get trapped into that instead of saying you could get all those benefits by taking a step back doing a bit less but doing those things better and more consistently and you'd get better results as opposed to trying to do everything and it being too unmanageable to do all those things at once all the time and so freeing up some of that mental space and being able to put that effort into other areas of life which allows someone to have a more sustainable approach to their lifting career long term makes some degree of sense to me yeah i completely agree and this is actually pretty similar to a conversation I had with one of my athletes. So he's a strongman competitor and he just did his first uh, competition uh, as, as an amateur. And when he came to me, one of the first thing he said was, I want to win world's strongest man. And that's a great goal, but it's a monstrous goal. And sometimes I think that we have this idea of, Oh, it'd be really great to accomplish these things, but you don't really understand what's involved. And, and you can't because you've only had a couple of competitions. You don't know what it's like to have to train for 20 years to get that. Um, the sacrifices you might have to make, the time, the dedication, you know, everything else is put on, on the back burner. And so a lot of the times like you were saying, we really overestimate our ability and our dedication to something because it's really easy to dedicate yourself today. But can you do the same boring crap for 20 years without veering off? And that's, I think, what kills most people. And, and I think it's a lot of the times as well because they really underestimate the size of the goals that they have. And they get into it and they're all gung-ho thinking that they're going to have these 90-day transformations like you see on the internet when the vast majority of those are not 90-day transformations. Right. <laughs> and so it ends up being a little bit misleading. Um, so, yeah, like making sure that people actually have a, a good understanding of what it is that they're tackling is, is really important. And I think that's where a good coach comes in as well because I'm self-coached and I've always been self-coached, but I have a lot of people like friends and, and other people who I do seek counsel from. And, I mean, I do dumb shit sometimes. And it's just... It just is the way it is, right? But mm. then I'll have friends and I'll have people being like, hey, you're doing dumb shit. You should probably stop and do something else. And then I'm like, ah, oh, yes, I'm a dumbass, you know? And, and so I think if you don't have those people kind of putting you in check, then it, it can be a little bit difficult to, uh, to determine like, hey, am I doing the right thing? Oh, you know what? I need to scrap all this stuff. Just get back to the basics. And exactly like you said earlier, just making sure that I'm doing the basics, but I'm doing them really, really, really well. Uh, and, and, and that's goes, it just goes such a long way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So, um, I wanted to ask about body fat percentage and, and nutrient partitioning. So I've heard things on either end of the spectrum and, um, I was speaking with, uh, Broderick Chavez. Do you know, do you know who he is? I do. And so yeah. he works a lot with enhanced athletes. Um, and he does, 
believe that with higher body fat percentages, that there is somewhat of a, of a downtick in hormone values and nutrient partitioning and things like that. I wanted to get your opinion and see maybe how that changes or if it even does change with, with natural athletes. Yeah, so it would seem that as someone gains more body fat and goes beyond a level of body fat that, let's say, is within their normal homeostatic range, if you just stay gaining more and more body fat, that at least mechanistically, it would make sense that you can end up with a higher degree of insulin resistance at the muscle uh, for, for a number of different mechanisms, whether that's inflammatory markers or changes uh, in, in other hormones. But once you have that muscle being more insulin resistant, you can then have, again, a mechanistic rationale for saying that for the same degree of, say, a calorie surplus and a training stimulus, that you wouldn't be gaining the same proportion of muscle out of that total amount of weight that you're gaining. So let's say someone starts gaining at, let's say, a, a kilo per month and the majority of that is muscle tissue and a small percentage of it is body fat, that as someone gains more and more body fat over time and is stay trying to gain at that same rate of weight gain, that proportionally more of that will shift to a slightly higher amount of fat mass and less lean mass for each keto that they gain from then on. You could make a pretty good um, argument from that perspective once body fat levels get higher. And this is probably why in the vast majority of circles uh, with strength athletes or people focused on body composition, you would tend to see them have a range for body fat or weight that they would see athletes fluctuate between. They go through a gaining phase up to an, an upper threshold level. And at that point, when either the coach or the athlete think, okay, I'm, I'm holding a bit too much body fat here that either I'm comfortable with um, or it's just been a long period of time that I've been in a gaining phase, then they'll switch them then to some period of dieting, reduce body fat levels again before beginning that ascent in body weight again. So doing that in cycles of gaining and dieting, which is probably most common for anyone that's that's gone through this. And I think uh, the other side of that is it's probably a function of what type of strategy someone takes to that gaining phase. So some people prefer to gain weight a bit faster, but then intersperse that with mini cuts, as some people would call them, or just dieting periods in between, and then cycle back and forth between those over time. Some people will go with a much slower rate of weight gain during their gaining phases. And that means they can go a longer period of time before having to use a dieting phase or having to use a mini cut etc. And so depending on which of those strategies someone uses, they'll have to go into that, that dieting period uh, more or less often. But the, the net result is really the same, that you're trying to gain while staying within, for that individual at least, an acceptable range of body fat. And if it's going much beyond that, it becomes problematic. And this is another reason why we don't want to go with that a mistake that I mentioned earlier for intermediates and advanced of trying to gain too fast and trying to gain at rates that they were doing as a beginner, because at that point they're packing on more body fat than they need to be. And it's going to just end up this downstream effect of actually making it less likely that their surplus is going to be going towards more lean tissue mass. So I think that that's typically the way how I tend to conceptualize that. So then it sounds like potentially taking a slower approach that would require less dieting phases would probably be a little bit more appropriate for a strength athlete 
looking to put on some muscle because then they would be able to have more productive training because they wouldn't necessarily be in a calorie deficit for as many weeks throughout the year. Would, would, is that fairly reasonable to say? I think this probably depends on who you talk to. And I, I know people who are supportive of either one of those strategies. And really, it's hard to say for sure which one is necessarily better, or even if one of them is better, it may just be down to preference. Um, so I think in the majority of cases for a strength athlete, at least the way we would program most of the lifters we work with would be with that first option that you mentioned. Slower rates of gain, gradually seeing an uptick um, in weight over time, not trying to go too fast, being happy enough, even if that's conservative changes, but as, because to a certain degree, their, the main outcome we care about is still their strength levels. So once they're in within the weight class that we want them to be gaining faster, isn't going to do anything if it's not contributing to more weight on the bar that they can lift. And so we can, probably go with the, uh, and, and we don't really, like you say, we don't want them going through periods of dieting all that often, particularly if it's getting close to a meet, we don't want to have to go into an aggressive diet to get body fat off. So going with a much slower rate of weight gain, gradually gaining over time and just allowing the focus to be on how do we support their training and knowing that just the fact that they're doing this hard training, there's going to be some stimulus to grow muscle um, is going to be enough. So that's why we would go with that first option of yeah, uh, a much slower rate of weight gain, but staying in that gaining phase for longer periods of time. That just tends to be our approach. But I can, I can see the rationale why other people choose to, to do, do it differently. Um, although most of the time where I tend to see that would be people with more of a physique focus. So then it sounds like that would be what you're talking about is more of a long-term strategy, let's say six months to a year, more, more around the whole competitive uh, cycle of, of a lifter. Um, so one of the things that's always interested me is how people kind of communicate with their athlete and just human behavior in general, right? So it's, it's pretty difficult to, it's very easy to conceptually just think, okay, these are the things that I have to do. But then because you're impatient, it's sometimes easy to either stack on things or want to change and, and tweak and you know, optimize um, when in reality, that's not necessarily the best thing to do. So when you are working with someone, whether they have competitive goals or not, if they just want to be stronger or if they want to improve their body composition for whatever reasons, how do you go about coaching them and keeping them on track so they don't kind of go off the rails and they don't start exploring all these kind of counterproductive uh, ways of augmenting their diet or their training or doing things and just really staying on track and being patient because sometimes that's the hardest thing to do is, is you go, you train, you eat the food that you want to do. And then it's like, you've got the rest of the day and you're like, all right, well, what do I do now? You know, mm. and it's almost like you feel you need to do more when in reality, it's just like, nope, you don't need to do more. Now you just need to wait for five years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And that's a really hard thing to do. So, so how do you handle that with, with your clients? So I think a big thing here is setting out a at least intermediate to longer term roadmap for them, the same way that they would envision where they want to be with certain meets and their progress over, let's say, the next year, maybe plus, and do the same thing, okay, over the next six to 12 months, this is kind of your plan of action from a body composition and nutrition 
perspective. And here's why, because you said, this is your goal. This is the weight class we want you competing in. And then working back from there, here's where we are going to kind of want you every three months, every one month. Here's what each of these phases is going to look like. Giving them a roadmap for what that's going to look like. And then breaking that down into smaller and smaller phases so that on any given week or even on a given day, they can remember that the reason why they're doing these certain things all feeds into this longer term goal. Because one of the big problems is that doing these things day in, day out gets difficult because those changes don't emerge day in, day out. You don't see those changes dramatically if we're looking at very slow rates of muscle mass gain, let's say. They become undetectable almost on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis. The same thing often happens with strength levels, particularly the more advanced someone is, that tend tends to be a while before we really can get clear of, of how things are going. And so in keeping someone on track is to remind them, here's what the goal was. We've established a long time ago that the best way to get to that goal was via this roadmap we've laid out. We've collaborated and agreed on this as a client and an athlete. And based on that, here's what you need to do in each phase. And we're going to know what you need to do each week. And therefore, this is what you need to execute on each day. And then just being able to remind them of that. It's like, look, this is all part of the plan. It's not going to go smoothly all the time. But these are the fundamental things that we need to be executing on each day and each week. And doing that enough is the process that we care about. It's, it's the same way when you're going into training sessions. You don't keep thinking three months ahead. You have to focus on what you're going to do that day in the gym and get it done. And let's treat things like that as well instead of losing sight on it, which I think is pretty easy to do. So hopefully it answers the question. But I, I think for me, the fundamental thing is being able to tie in together what you're asking them to do on a day-to-day basis and tying that back into the, that longer-term vision so that you can see that roadmap and how it all fits together, I think, is, is very useful for most athletes. So how do you structure milestones or benchmarks? Uh, because like you said, especially when you're building muscle, if you are intermediate or advanced, you know, you don't see these changes on, on the scale every day. It's not like yesterday you didn't have delts and now you have these big cap delts. So how do you, how do you communicate with an athlete and say, hey, here are the things that we're looking for. And if you do these things, that's progress, right? So from a training perspective, maybe you're hitting a rep PR. Maybe you hit an old weight that you've already hit, but your speed has improved. Your technique has improved. These are all the little PRs that show, hey, I am getting better. I am seeing progress. And, you know, in between the times you hit an actual 1RM. So do you have anything that you use like that mm. with, uh, with, with nutrition? Maybe like how adherent they are or, or I, I don't know. Mm. So that there's two sides of this. One, I would say for someone that is looking at gaining muscle mass, like you say, it's going to be very difficult to see something quantitatively on a very short-term basis um, in relation to actual measurements or even to looking at visuals. So I think the best proxy there comes back down to their training and it'd be the exact thing you mentioned of if you are getting stronger over time at a certain rep range, Um, for a certain exercise, then provided that we know that your energy is appropriate and you're getting enough protein in, you're sleeping properly, all the things that we can tick off. Yes, I'm doing these on a day-to-day basis. And over these training blocks, my 10 rep max on these certain movements, or just I'm doing this movement for three sets of 12 and the load is going up over time. 
continuing to do that, we can be pretty confident that there's going to be a gain in, in muscle tissue. That's going to be our best proxy. So I'd say that is one objective way to look at it. And then from in terms of tracking nutrition, again, it's coming down to what are those things that we just need to have in place to allow muscle to grow. So again, the nutrition stuff is just permissive to muscle growing. The stimulus is going to be the training. So what is putting you in the best environment for that? Okay. Are you eating an appropriate amount of food each day? Are you making sure you're consistent without not having days where you might not eat anything before you get to the gym and having like one small meal when you go home? Are you making sure you're getting that protein in across the day? Are you making sure your sleep quality is good? Um, are you taking creatine each day if, if you're consuming a supplement, et cetera? What are those daily habits that you should be doing to support this? And then like you say, are you adhering to them? Yes or no? And you can do that over a, a month long period and see like how many days have I consistently done this? And you're looking for like, yeah, if 90% plus of those days are like ticking all those boxes, you're probably in a pretty good spot. If it's very inconsistent, then we have to work out why that is and address that issue. So it's a checklist of those things in a nutrition front. Are you doing them? And then to see if that's actually translating to changes in, in muscle mass on a short-term basis, you're looking at is that strength over a mesocycle, let's say, increasing. And over longer periods of times, then you can start looking at visuals. You can maybe take into account body weight changes over a number of months, um, et cetera. Um, but but it would depend if we're looking at acutely or a more long-term vision. I do like how you factor in uh, some more quantitative, like objective uh, measurements to, to actually show progress, even if it is just in behavior, right? Because you can be pretty certain, like, like you mentioned a moment ago, if, if your adherence was 20% and then all of a sudden your adherence is 90% and I can show the improvement week by week, it's like, hey, we told you initially, you need to be roughly, and let's just say hypothetically, 80% adherent for these things to really start to manifest in, in physical changes. And you can start showing that. And then you start building up to the 80%. That can kind of be this like initial goal that takes the attention off of uh, the, the body weight, the physique, the things like that, and kind of give you this sense of accomplishment, uh, somewhat similar to, you know, people with body fat, uh, goals who, who want to lose weight, but aren't necessarily seeing changes in the scale, but they can kind of show progress elsewhere. And then once they stay focused on that, the body weight just kind of starts to drop on its own. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I do think this that. importantly gets into process oriented uh, metrics versus just the outcome based metrics. So yeah, we can look at your outcome metric of actual muscle mass, but that's very difficult to detect. Whereas what we really care about, what the athlete has control over is their process day to day. They don't really have control about how much muscle they will have gained in six weeks from now. They do have control of what behaviors they follow each day. So one useful way that I've used with clients for a long period of time on this adherence thing is we could have, let's say there's an athlete that's very inconsistent with their diet. Some days are eating plenty of food, some days not that much. Some days they might have one meal before they come in, other days they might have plenty. And they're just all over the place and it's very inconsistent. We could say, all we're gonna do is get you to focus on having a set structure. Let's have four meals roughly at this time across the day. Can you make them look roughly like this? So there's a, a serving of protein in each one. You're getting some carbohydrates, at least in a couple of those meals before you come and train. And can you just do that each day and give them like some very simple rules, like two or three things, and then have a 28 day calendar set up. So over a four week period, and just at the end of each day, 
either give a yes or a no or a check mark or an X, whether they hit those main principles. So did they have their four structured meals with a high protein feeding that day? Yes or no. And then by the end of that 28 days, you can count up how many check marks there were and how many X's there were. And again, if, if someone is getting like 24 out of the 28 days were spot on, then okay, that we're doing pretty good. And we can take that. That's putting you in a good position. If it's kind of like 15, 16 days, then we can say, there's no need for us to do anything more advanced. There's, there's a clear explanation why you might not be making the progress you're making because we haven't got the structure down and you can apply that adherence model to anything you could do it with sleep at least 28 days. How many of them are, were at say at least seven hours plus or depending on what that person's baseline is and why the reason I like this of aiming for 24 out of the 28 days as a minimum is that if on a, any given day, someone doesn't hit what they were planning to, it's no big deal. It's like, okay, uh, that wasn't very good today, but I can just get back to it tomorrow. And I've got an incentive to try to make tomorrow good because I want at least 24 of these 28 days to be good. And so that will stop this tendency to say, oh, I messed up. So I'm just going to forget about my diet now. So that would be one potential way of trying to focus in on what are the behaviors I have to follow today? And am I adherent to them or not? And then at the end of a six-week period, I'll let the outcome take care of itself. I'll let how much muscle I gain take care of itself. I don't really have much control over that. I have control over those behaviors I'm following each day, my training, and making sure that's progressing as it should. And that's a really important accountability piece too, because as you mentioned, someone might think that they're being really adherent, but in reality, they're not. And I mean, we see this all the time with a lot of the research that's come out on tracking calories, right? People say, oh, I'm tracking my calories and I'm only eating 1200 calories a day and I'm not losing weight. I must have metabolic damage and unique snowflake disorder or whatever it might mm. be, right? And then all of a sudden they put these people in a metabolic ward, give them standardized calories and every single person loses weight. And I, I don't think that people are lying intentionally, but sometimes I think that there's a big issue with precision in, in their tracking of macros or whatever they're doing to somewhat evaluate the, the amount of uh, energy they're taking in. And so I, I really like that from a behavioral standpoint because it puts the onus back on the individual and not from like a blame standpoint, but almost it, it almost empowers you because you're like, oh, I've been so frustrated with not being able to put on muscle or you know gaining too much weight and gaining too much of it uh, being from too much proportionally as fat. And then it puts that power back in your own hands and you're like, hey, you know what? That's because I'm only hitting, you know, 16 out of the 30 days that I'm supposed to. Mm. Well, what would happen if I got to 20? And it kind of gives you that gradual buildup. And then as you see, you start getting a little bit better, a little bit better. And all of a sudden those results start to kind of reflect the level of adherence you're doing. And so it ends up being a really simple kind of uh, measuring stick for, for the results that will come because it, it, it ends up being a great potentiator of the results because like you said, you can't control if you're going to gain one kilo or two kilos this month, or maybe it's less, maybe it's more, but by controlling your level of adherence, I mean, especially if someone's working with you, like <laughs> the, it, it's not like you're guessing, you know what I mean? Like, mm. You've done right. it a million times for a million different people. It's not, it's not rocket science, right? So it just ends up being a matter of like how you get the individual to actually execute, which kind of brings me to, to the next question. Um, a lot of the times there's a difference between this theoretical optimal and what's optimal for the individual. And so how do you go about 
um, how do you go about the process of individualization to find out, okay, where is this person's, where is, what's the best person, sorry, what's the most reasonable starting point for this person? And then how do you progress? Because you might want to progress in maybe 10 different ways. So how do you choose which one's going to be the best one for that individual? And how does that conversation look? Yeah. And this is a complex question because this is essentially the, the essence of coaching. And I think really to me, what competent coaching ends up being an effective coaching, which takes a lot of time to hone in that it's of all the approaches that I'm, I'm aware of and the ways that we could go for this individual in front of me, what is going to be most efficacious and productive for them. And I think a good starting point is obviously taking stock of this person's baseline, where are they currently at? Beyond that, thinking about this person's history. So what have they done in the past? What types of dieting strategies have they used? Have they had previous experiences with other coaches? How have those things gone? Which ones have they succeeded at? Which ones have they failed at? Why were the reasons those things failed or they didn't? You could take into account maybe personality type. And does this person do they seem more suited to a different strategy based on who they are? Do, will they be the person that responds well to here's a couple of habits to try and ingrain over the next couple of weeks, or do they need to feel like they're being given a more optimized quote unquote plan? Because the way we communicate the exact same things can be very different for each person. So I think taking stock of all those things and trying to get a picture of where this person is at. Also thinking about, what do they see for this coaching relationship going forward? What are they expecting from you as a coach? What are they expecting in terms of their results? Are those results realistic? Because if you don't, if you're not aware of those already and they have a different view of what the goal in six weeks should be, then in six weeks time, there's going to be a friction now between the, the coach and the athlete. So understanding what they're envisaging. And if that's something that is not realistic, having that conversation to be able to reframe that in a different way. And I think this is where uh, we try and put kind of a focus on that coaching relationship being quite collaborative and there's, there's a number of reasons for this. It gets the athlete more invested if they feel that they are part of the decision-making process. There's lots of literature showing the, uh, the benefits of an athlete feeling autonomous in that process, that they are in some way tailoring some of these choices. They feel that their coach is listening to them. Um, so I think there's a way to hear them out, collaborate on what they may do, and give flexibility where that's required. So there's some things that you can't be flexible on, right? There's some core foundational things with either their training programming or their nutrition that you have to outline for them. But there's some areas where there is flexibility that you give them the option to choose between different things, or we can go one of these different ways, which way sounds good to you. And building up this picture of what makes sense to that person and being able to check in with them, maybe even before putting that plan together of saying, okay, this is, this is what you've said to me. Is that correct? here's what I think would be a good path forward. And here's how we might go about that. How does that sound? And then if someone's on board with that, great. They've already said that they're bought into it. They believe in this plan. If they do have any reservations, they can voice them there and you can take care of them before that process even starts. And to me, that's what the individualization is. It's not me saying, oh, let me get a genetic test on this someone and they require this amount of carbohydrate and someone requires something else that that we're not even there yet uh in in terms of the science and it 
that's not really individualized coaching in my perspective. It's thinking about what does this person need for a myriad of factors that we've just mentioned. And it's very difficult to distill that down into an easy, uh, like three step formula of this is how you individually coach someone. What it really comes down to is how best can you understand this person as a, as a human. And that takes time to develop all sorts of uh, communication skills, uh, being empathetic as a coach, trying to understand where this person is coming from and how they're appraising the situation. And unfortunately, there's no easy answers uh, to give there apart from trying to focus on those human to human skills over time. And I think it's very rare that a coach could take someone and benefit them as a human or make them a healthier and happier human being and that not in some way manifests as them being a better athlete. So I think understanding that is probably a, a good cornerstone of, of how a coach can then go and conduct themselves. I think it's a pretty solid process. And, and um, so personally, I don't take on lots of clients. I have a very small client pool um, because I'm super hands-on with, uh, with all of them. So I'm talking like they text me and send me videos of their list. So I, I predominantly train individuals who are interested in strength. So strong men, Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, things like that. Uh, and people with body composition goals. So I don't do competitors, but if you have a body composition goal, that's great. But a lot of the times they'll be training and they send me a video and I'll critique it like on the spot. We're texting constantly throughout the day and you just can't do that with like a hundred people. Right. Mm, right. But, um, I've personally noticed that just giving so much like that, they just intuitive, not, not even intuitively, but they're like, oh man, this guy is giving so much to help me get better. I need to at least match his level of dedication. So I can't come up with lame excuses. I can't do this. You know, like I need to be engaged. And it just builds that really strong sense of, like you said, like trust. And, and so if you do give them advice, they're like, okay, got a coach. Thanks coach. It's like, they don't second guess you. They really trust you. And, and that's so critical because especially if they are a competitor and you throw on a weight, that's maybe like 10 kilos more than they've ever done. And they're like, I don't know if I can do that. You need to be able to say, Hey, I wouldn't give you a weight if I didn't think you could do it. And then have them believe you hundred percent, just like a yep. switch went off in their head. And, yep. and you know, in other cases too, maybe it's not as much as on the line, but it's like, Hey, I'm freaking out. I'm not losing weight. What's going on. And, and, you being able to give them a rationale and then having them actually believe it and not go off the rails. Like it, it's such a critical part of, of coaching is that relationship that you build with them and that trust um, that kind of develops over time. Um, right. Yeah. It has to be, it has to feel to the person that's at minimum a symmetrical relationship. And if not, the coach is maybe even giving a, a tad bit more. I think, you're going to run into issues if someone feels that they're trying to put effort into a process, but they suspect the coach doesn't really care about some of their concerns or isn't really putting in an effort. And that's going to undermine that regardless of what the information is. Most of it is coming down to that, how that person feels they're being uh, treated and cared for and, and heard. Um, and which speaks exactly to the experience you just outlined that the fact that they know that you're there for them and that you put in that degree of effort means that they can have that trust in you. And that in itself is going to breed confidence and self-efficacy on their end. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even earlier when you kind of touched on like the self-determination theory about autonomy and, and competency and, and 
that stuff really does go a long way and it builds that level of relatedness um, with, with, you know, the coach and with, with the athlete, because then it's like, you know, I, I think, I can't remember where I read this. Um, maybe it was on like the PTDC or something like that. Don't, you know, don't quote me on that, but it was like one of the number one reasons why clients drop uh, coaches is because of a lack of communication. They don't communicate with them as much as, as they want. Mm. And I know a lot of coaches um, look at that and they're like, well, I don't hold hands and I don't babysit. But I sort of think that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater in that case where it's like, okay, well, I mean, sure. I don't babysit either. I'm not the kind of guy to be like, to placate clients and be like, Oh no, that's okay. You know, you're doing your best. It's like, I will call someone out if I don't think that they're putting an effort, but at the same time, like you need to be there for them. You need to help them. It's like, if they're investing in you, they're investing money. And in my opinion, that's like, there's, there's nothing more serious than that because like I've literally traded my time for money and now I'm giving you one of the most valuable things so I, I think it's really important for coaches and, and things like that to, to really be there for them and, and actually invest a whole lot more than what the athlete is because then they just like, one, that's a client for life, but then two, like you said, there's just such a level of like um, efficacy that they develop because they're going to get better results, they're going to be happier, they're going to enjoy the process, and then it just is this reciprocal relationship that keeps feeding into it and things just progress so much better. Right. Um, but, but kind of veering back on yeah. track from this tangent. Um, <laughs> one of the things that uh, I don't hear people talk a lot about is just gut health, especially if you're looking to put on muscle, um, even if you're a small guy, but especially if you're a big guy, the amount of food that you have to eat is, is really challenging. And that can create all sorts of issues, especially if you're eating higher protein or, or you know, certain types of carbs. You know, it can result in like gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, upset stomach in general, like all sorts of things. Do you have any sort of strategies to help mitigate this or at least manage it to, to some degree? Yes. Muscle? So I think the first point is to try and pinpoint why someone's experiencing those symptoms. So first would be to try and rule out any clinical issues. So um, trying to make sure it's not something like celiac disease, which they can go and get tested for, um, making sure it's not something that's triggering IBS because of a certain type of food intolerance they may have or a, a, a true food allergy in some sense, or whether that's IBS brought on by stress, which is, is quite common within IBS. So those things to try and rule out or that they could at least get checked out if it's a clinical issue. If it's simply something that's been brought on because they've, they're now trying to eat just such a huge volume of food, that they're having this massive stomach distension, that it's uncomfortable the amount of food they have to try and fit in, um, et cetera. A lot of the time that can just be simply a function of them trying to do it on a quote unquote healthy diet. So in other words, just trying to eat to stick to clean foods. However, the athlete tends to define those only sticking to the same, uh, like, like lots of vegetables and oats and fibrous foods and beans and lentils and their lean proteins and so on. And relying on that for all of their calories, if they're having to eat a lot more than they usually would, that can cause some of those issues because it's such a huge volume of food, particularly if there's lots of vegetables in there, which don't contribute that many calories, but it's a large volume. The same thing with a lot of fibrous foods are having way more fiber maybe than they usually would have. And this can cause some of those gastrointestinal distress issues. So if that is the case, uh, you could probably make a, uh, it's worth trying with that person of 
having more of their calories contributed by some foods they may even see as uh, not healthy foods. So again, it doesn't have to be a large amount of their diet, but at least some of their calories can come from things that are easier to consume in high amounts of calories with very little volume and very little fiber. So instead of having to try and get up all from these massive plates of vegetables, taking some of that out and replacing it with being able to eat some ice cream each day is going to contribute some calories to that, that diet. It's going to contribute to their carbohydrate intake, but it's quite a calorie dense source of food. It's very easy for the athlete to consume and it's not doesn't have this huge food volume and lots of fiber. So if that is the issue, you could make a case for we're going to um, sacrifice some of the food quality here for the benefit of giving more calorie dense options. It doesn't have to be those very processed foods. It could be changing things like um, making shakes or smoothies and adding in things like some, a couple of tablespoons of peanut butter or some other nut butter. It could be adding some milk to those smoothies instead of water. It could be taking out, again, some of that, that vegetables and maybe adding in some like coconut oil, whatever it is to get the athlete to have a higher source of calories for less volume of food, maybe taking care of how much fiber they're consuming over the course of the day. So it's not super high compared to their normal intake while still being a healthy amount. And those would be some of the changes that we could make if that tends to be the issue. Now, if it's a different issue driving those symptoms, then it would have to be addressed in a different manner. But from, from uh, this particular case where someone has increased their food intake, and that has just been the reason why they're now having some of these issues, a lot of time it could be from just trying to get it from this extra food, which is just causing this massive stomach distension, lots of high fiber intake compared to normal, et cetera. So I was wondering if you'd just be able to touch on it real quickly. You did mention eating foods that are normally talked about or normally regarded as unhealthy. So, you know, maybe like brownies or ice cream and things like that. And I know a lot of people really are concerned about sugar content to the food and food quality. And I think that's a, a great thing in, in concept, but, you know, can you give a little bit more context as to how that sort of thing affects your body? Maybe like the dose response relationship. Mm. Yeah. And I think this is important. I think the, the way the conversation needs to shift around food quality is looking at overall dietary patterns as opposed to individual food choices that saying someone ate a particular food at a meal, is that healthy? Yes or no is an impossible question to answer and doesn't really make much sense. There's no context around it. What we need to look at is what does the person's overall diet look like on average most of the time? And is that a healthy dietary pattern? And we're quite clear from research what a healthy diet pattern should be for the most part, that people should be having plenty of servings of fruits and vegetables, should be having an adequately high amount of fiber. So for the average male, that's about 38 grams per day. For the average female, it's about 25 grams per day, um, based on the numbers from the Institute of Medicine. Uh, you'd have your servings of fruits and vegetables, like I said, focusing on uh, whole grain products, getting in some maybe uh, good fiber sources like some lentils or beans, etc. Having lean sources of protein, uh, keeping saturated fat intake below 10% of your calories, trying to limit the amount of added sugars that are consumed in the diet, etc. We have these patterns that tend to emerge as beneficial to the diet. So it's more important to say, are these things being 
uh, done on a consistent basis rather than every single food choice. And you can stick to all those overall fundamentals of a healthy diet while still leaving room for some in, with some of your intake for discretionary calories. So foods that are just ones that you enjoy, that you are eating purely for taste, that may not be contributing in any way nutritionally, but can still fit into that overall allotment of your daily calories. They're not replacing those other foods um, in, in a negative way. And so you're still getting all the stuff that you need. So with any dietary question in nutrition science, thinking about the healthfulness of a certain food or replacing a certain food in the diet has to be couched in the context of replacing it with what. So if we take, if we add in some of these foods, what are they replacing? So if you're eating so much extra um, processed food that's high in sugar, high in fat, that it now starts to mean you hit your calories, you can't consume enough vegetables and enough of these whole grain foods and your overall food quality goes dramatically down, that's problematic. If you're adding in a small amount, if someone has a couple of scoops of ice cream on a certain day and their overall food quality is really good, that's not going to probably be a negative, right? So it's not this threshold of any added sugar in the diet is some way toxic or problematic or causes fat gain or any of these other things that we hear. It's that you can probably include plenty of uh, these things within an overall healthy dietary pattern, it just again comes down to how often and how much that is being done. So is it causing that person to overeat calories if they're trying not to? Um, if it is, then that could be problematic. Does it mean that a lot of their food intake is coming from just nutrient devoid processed food? If so, that is problematic, that we need to take some of that out and replace it with some of those um, beneficial foods that we mentioned. But if they're doing all those things that they should be, and there's always probably going to be some room left over for some of their calories to come from some discretionary items, if it's, a, if it's consumed within an appropriate portion, then it's not going to be problematic for uh, someone's health in the long term. Right. So we're coming up on that hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. So um, where can the listeners find you? So the best place is just probably sigmanutrition.com, S-I-G-M-A nutrition.com. There they can find the podcast, any of our written Sigma statements, uh, other resources that we recommend, and then everything else that we do. And then if they're looking for me on social media, they can get me at Instagram, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. And happy to take any questions on either of those places. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for jumping on. I really appreciate the call. Um, so for, for a lot of the listeners, we actually recorded a, an episode a while back, but my hard drive got destroyed. And so I appreciate you jumping back on. And uh, this is, in my opinion, actually a much more interesting episode. I feel like we covered a lot of really cool things that don't get discussed enough. So thanks so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. Absolute pleasure. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. 
Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.